Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good day, everyone. This is Tony Moskal with your high school sports podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network. The only place with a show for everyone. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? Hey, if you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. The odds for the NBA championship just came out. The Lakers are probably the oldest team. They're going to need Geritol for that locker room. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think will win the championship, Bet Online has all the latest odds. So visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. I don't know if you've been watching or paying attention to the Olympics and baseball the only real thing on. I know that I'm watching our athletes compete for medals. If you've been hiding under a rock, then the Simone Biles story is news to you. I think it's important that we try to have an open and honest conversation about mental health and our athletes at every level. Is there too much pressure being put on them? Do they get enough mental training? Are they built to deal with adversity? In my lifetime, I've seen athletes from all walks of life struggle. Steve Blass, Rick Ankiel, Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch are some baseball players that had difficulty throwing. Basketball player Kevin Love had bouts of depression. David Duvall, a professional golfer, forgot how to hit the ball. With the recent happenings with COVID, it's become more apparent that it's a huge issue. School-age kids are dealing with these issues, and we're going to get into that on this week's podcast. And joining me for the second time is someone who's got firsthand knowledge with this kind of stuff. And China McCartney from the Jager Sports Program. China, thanks for joining me again, man. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Appreciate you uh, having me back on. I think we did something right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can go two for two, right? Right, absolutely. Hey, let's let's rehash your story and how you got into, you know, working with Alan and the whole mental training, mental, you know, thing with athletes. Yeah, so I went to my first Jager Sports camp when I was 12 years old in 1999, so you can do the math. Um, uh, but yeah, I was exposed to mental training uh, from a young age. At that time, it was very kind of taboo, and you only really got therapy or mental training if something was wrong with you. You didn't really seek it out um, as a competitive edge. And then as I started going through my own professional career and the expectations of getting drafted, what round are we getting drafted? What you know scholarship are you going to get? Um, I started having bouts with anxiety and had my first panic attack uh, in 2009, which was my junior year of college, and hid it from everybody because I didn't want to be judged and suffered in silence for six years until finally reaching out for help in 2015. And how did that go for you? What was it like? Because, you know, we're men, we are the male species. We don't, we don't show vulnerability. We don't reach out for help. We stuff our feelings and we deal with them. What was that process like for you actually letting that guard down and saying to somebody, Hey man, I need help with this stuff. Yeah, it was in one word, it was terrifying. And very uncomfortable. I think the only other time I was that uncomfortable was when I took my driver's test at 16 and was terrified to fail. (laughs) Uh, But going into the therapy session, I'm going in for panic attacks and I'm having a panic attack walking into the therapy session. And, you know, I had been exposed, like I said, to mental training 
for years up at that point, but the mental training was more applied to physical performance in the sport that I was playing. It wasn't really, at the time at least, I wasn't diving in deep enough to deal with, you know, real world mental health and real world emotions and stuff that had gone on in my childhood with being from a divorced family, one parent that was incarcerated twice before I was 12 years old. I hadn't dealt with any of that. And so going in to talk about that for the first time in 2015 was absolutely terrifying. And then one hour later, whatever the opposite word of terrifying is, that's what I felt walking out of that door. I felt a hundred pounds lighter. I had a pep in my step. I had gotten so much off my chest and that was just step one of the journey. But, um, it was incredibly eye-opening hearing from a professional that does this for a living with mental health that I was not alone. I was not unique, you know, not in a bad way, but that there were other people struggling with the same issues. And I was almost given permission to just be who I truly was. Cause for the previous six years, really since high school. So for the previous decade or so, I was living one way on the outside and feeling completely differently on the inside. You know, you mentioned the physical training and I'm a coach, you're a coach. We both played sports. You played at a much higher level than I did. And we look at kids and say, hey, you got to be mentally tough. You got to you got to grind out this at bat. You got to grind out getting through this hitter and stuff like that. But that is so much different than than the internal struggle that a lot of people are going through. How did you deal with that, being that they're both so different? I didn't deal with it well as I was playing. When I was playing, I learned much of what I know now because I was able to take a step back and look back on my playing career. And where did I come up short in terms of, you know, off the field mental health to help my on the field performance? Because I was a pretty, and even to this day, if I play my grandma in chess, I'm going to destroy her. I'm a complete, (laughs) like I can compete and I can get consumed with the competition in the moment. It was the anticipatory anxiety that would get the best of me or, you know, if I didn't perform well, feeling the guilt and the judgment that probably wasn't there, but creating judgment from my teammates, the coaching staff, letting people down. Um, And so dealing with it in the moment, I I can't give an answer. Um, You know, a lot of times people say, well, I did this and I did that. I'm just going to be honest with the listeners and with you is that in the moment and during my playing career, I didn't do a great job of addressing both of them, which is why my career was as short or long as it was. Um, But looking back and the experience in training players now, which I'm sure we're going to cover some of that, um, there's a lot more knowledge and I have a lot more insight on what it means to be a well-rounded human being, which makes you a better athlete, not the other way around. Just because you're a good athlete doesn't mean you're a good human being or have it all taken care of, which we've seen in the recent months and weeks. Yeah. Before we get to Simone Biles, in the last 18 months, there have been hundreds of stories of kids having mental health issues. I've got elementary age nieces and nephews, and I've, you know, I've talked to their, you know, their parents about it, you know, my sister, my, my sister-in-law, and how it's affected them. However, with the older crowd, I see it in high school, and I, I don't want to belittle the point of mental health, but have we convinced kids maybe a little bit that with everything that's going on that, yeah, you've got an issue, you've got anxiety, you've got this, and they learn how to take advantage of that? Yes, and that's a unbelievable question because this is something that's been coming up in a lot of my conversations recently that 
I have a hard time articulating it the right way where I don't want to seem offensive to somebody that's really going through something because I've lived that firsthand where you don't want to demean it and you don't want to belittle that. So I don't want it to come off that way. However, with anything in life, not just mental health, there are certain people that will see opportunities where there is an opportunity. And so if they see somebody get away with saying, you know, I'm anxious, so I can't do this today. And then the next day, a different person doesn't want to do that same task. They can say, I'm anxious. I don't want to do it. And then there's no real, because it is mental, there's no barometer, right? There's no x-ray to figure out if your brain is broken. Um, and so, yeah, I will. I would say that's the education we've gone through with COVID. We are going through probably since 2018 to current that is going to take education, research, trial and error to figure out what is the right way, because we don't want to create an atmosphere that rewards laziness or the path of least resistance. But we don't want to create an atmosphere where like forever mental health issues have been stigmatized and people don't want to talk about what they're going through emotionally. So that's going to be, you know, the billion dollar question, the billion dollar industry going forward is how we can distinguish the two and how do you work on mental strength, um, determination, perseverance versus making sure that we have the right indicators in place to determine what is true anxiety, panic disorder, depression, um, and things like that. But uh, anybody that has that answer right now, um, I haven't heard of them or read it on the internet yet. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, if, if you do, you know, you're going to be the, the smartest guy out there. And and how do we tell with kids? Because like you said, there's no x-ray to say, hey, your bone is broken. You can't do an MRI to say, hey, your ligament is torn. We, we really can't go inside the brain and say, yeah, you're right. You have anxiety. But what are some clues that people can see that they can take away to know that, you know, what this is a legitimate thing? Yeah. And that's probably the number one question that I love to answer because there are a few different things. I think communication and relationships with whoever's in question here, right? If we're talking to coaches and you have players that you're leading, then it's your responsibility to have a relationship with them and to communicate with them so that you can tell if something's different when something is wrong. Because if you don't invest and you don't engage in a relationship with somebody that you're leading, then you're not going to know if one day they're communicating differently than the day before because you don't care. And this can be the same with parents, kids, you know, peer to peer, anything like that. But a big indicator of everything that I read is massive personality changes, right? So if you have somebody that's outgoing in charisma, and then they're kind of reclusing themselves or staying away from the group and they're not talking as much, something's probably going on mentally there because they've totally changed. And the one that surprises people is somebody that's a little more docile and quiet normally. If all of a sudden they're talkative and their demeanor and everything has changed way more outgoing and everything, that's still an indicator that something's going on mentally. And it might be a good thing, but that's where communication would help. Be like, hey, what's going on? You kind of get the feeler and like, as a parent, when your kid is sick, you know they're sick. When there's a situation going on at school and they're like, mommy, my tummy hurts today, I don't wanna go to school, and you can tell they're talking with their normal voice, you know you know, that there's a, a good chance that they're trying to avoid something, and then that's where leadership, parenting, coaching comes in to try to help them see where the benefits will come from pushing through the situation 
if that's the right move in that situation. Um, but yeah, so that's just a, a few of the ways you can kind of tell based on your relationship and communication with, you know, whoever it is in question. When you heard about Simone Biles, what was your first reaction? Because I heard about it and I thought, this is going to go a couple of different ways. But going through what you've gone through and, and the, the, the field that you're, you are in right now dealing with all this, what was the first thing that went through your mind? It kind of it, it tore my gut in two different directions because like I said, I'm a diehard competitor. I know, I don't know personally. I just know as a competitor looking at what Olympians have to do and how they literally devote their lives. Some of them to 10 seconds of a performance every four years. And if they're lucky every four years, sometimes it's once. Um, And so it tore me up as an athlete and for her teammates and different things like that one way. But then on the other side of it, I was kind of torn in two different directions on the mental health side too, because I felt for her. And then I was very afraid of what the reaction was going to be from people that haven't gone through it or haven't felt it. Um, And that also kind of was like, I was a little excited because I know how much this was going to be covered. I listen to Dan Patrick's show every day, a, a sports talk radio show. He covered it with class, like he does everything else. And it was talked about, it's still being talked about. It was talked about four or five, six days on these shows. And so from that perspective, it brought me a lot of excitement that there was going to be such a bright light shed on mental health and lead to discussions and arguments and debates, which is usually how we get to solutions sometimes, uh, not so much these days. But um, yeah, so it tore me up because as a competitor, I want to compete. I want my teammates to compete. But from a mental health perspective, especially somebody of her caliber, she's not going to do what she did unless it was real. Um, And knowing the little that I know about the situation with the twisties or whatever they call it, you know, she's doing things with her body that if one thing goes wrong or she's not committed mentally, she could literally die with how fast if she lands wrong on her neck or something. So long winded answer, um, which tells you how many different directions my brain went when I heard the news. You know, it's funny. I I love watching gymnastics because I took a gymnastics class in college and the athleticism that they have, the strength that they have, they accomplish more by just stepping out onto their athletic arena than I've ever done in my entire life. You know, somebody that's done those routines thousands of times, what do you think happened from an educated standpoint? From an educated standpoint, point from reading is, number one, I think, of any Olympic athlete in these Olympics, she had the most pressure on her by far because it's gold or failure to the outside world, right? She has to win gold. She has to win a lot of golds. And that's tremendous pressure on anybody. But then number two, I think oftentimes mental and physical go hand in hand, right? So from what I'm kind of understanding with the situation, the twisties, like if you've ever been on a boat and you get off a boat and you kind of still feel, even when you're on land, you're kind of still rocking, right? Your body still feels like you're on a boat. That's what the twisties is to, they need to come up with a better name, by the way. But that's what the twisties is to a gymnast is their body it kind of doesn't feel calibrated. Like it kind of still feels like it's spinning even when they're on the ground. And so if that little seed of doubt creeped into her mind, 
And then all of a sudden, all this other pressure and, you know, COVID and it being sent back a year and all the pressure from sponsors and everything like that. I just think it all became this enormous situation where she didn't feel comfortable. She felt at danger and she probably felt in her heart of hearts, the best thing for the team was to not compete, not bring, you know, like, I mean, she did bring a lot of attention to it, but she got out of the way. They still achieved a silver medal, which is awesome. And her cheering on her teammates and not shying away from press conferences and being willing to answer all the questions is just, in my opinion, it's commendable. And I, I couldn't be more proud as a fellow countryman of, you know, what she did. And seeing all of those things, because she is so successful, she is the best, you know, of this generation and, and probably of all time. Having all of that on you, knowing that you either win gold or you're a failure, that's that's got to weigh heavy on somebody. Even though you look at her and she's done these routines thousands of times and spent hundreds of thousands of hours, it can still happen no matter what. Right. And that's one of the biggest lessons hopefully everybody takes away from, you know, Michael Phelps being as proactive as he's been in the mental health community, the best Olympian medal wise, I think of all time, Kevin loves professional athletes. Everybody is still human, right? And it doesn't matter the success you have, the money you make at times, you're not going to be okay. And that's what we have to normalize is that sometimes it is okay to not be okay. And there's going to be different instances where it has more consequences, right? Because if somebody at the local restaurant is having a mental health issue and they can't come in to cook burgers, okay, who cares? No one cares. No one writes an article, right? But that's just as serious as Simone Biles not being able to perform her job, you know, because she's human and it just so happened to happen at the biggest moment. And hopefully it just creates lessons and everybody realized that human beings are human beings and the brain is still far from mastered in terms of education and especially with, I mean, that's a whole nother answer, side tangent. So I'll just stop it right there. You know, but then you look at somebody like Michael Jordan and and you look at the greats in their game, Tom Brady, Joe Montana. These guys say, I want the ball in that situation because I know that I'm going to succeed. And that quote by Michael Jordan, you know, I've missed thousands of shots. I've missed 50 game winners. And, and that's what makes me succeed. What's the difference between maybe those guys and, and say somebody, you know, like a, a, you know, a a Rick Ankiel who forgot how to pitch all of a sudden, or a Steve Sachs who couldn't throw from second base to first base. I'd say it's the same difference as somebody that decides to be a surgeon and the person that passes out at the first sight of blood. I think different human beings are drawn to different things. I think certain people are great role players. Certain people can perform under a certain amount of pressure. And then there are certain people that just thrive and don't shy away and don't even they don't even know the phrase shy away right they just want the ball they want to compete they want to perform and so i think it's just different wirings a bunch of different things that lead to who you are but i i think you know a guy like michael jordan um that's the top one percent of one percent and then everybody else wants to pass the ball to michael jordan so that they don't have to take the shot and i think that's 
the best analogy that I just kind of thought of myself is, you know, I would never want to perform a surgery, but a surgeon may never want to pitch in front of 10,000 people. And so I think there's just different passions and different mindsets and different things that I don't think we can, I think there are certain things you can't teach. And once there's a certain level of pressure or a certain circumstance that occurs, certain people are just not going to be able to, to do that. And they're going to have to take a mental break and take a step back. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole New York thing. Some guys can thrive in New York and, and play for the Yankees, and some guys can't. I remember a guy named Ed Whitson, who was a pitcher who could not pitch in Yankee Stadium. He, he pitched on the road the whole time because he just couldn't handle the pressure of, of New York. Yeah, yeah. So different environments for different people. Um, and I've had friends. I have a friend that's a first responder. He's a, an ambulance worker i don't know exactly what they're called but i'm just like dude how do you do what you do like you're driving into chaotic situations and blood and gore and this and that and he's like how do you do what you do talking in front of people playing in front of people doing podcasts this and that and i was just like oh that was a good perspective because it's he would never want to do certain things where he had to speak a lot or you know perform in front of people and in my opinion it's like you're performing one of the most important tasks of all as a first responder but just different characteristics and different different mental attributes i would say the people that say you know and there's been a lot of mixed feelings about her uh simone biles on social media and and just in the media people saying hey if you want to be the goat you know the greatest of all time you, you don't walk out on your teammates you find a way to make this happen and then there's been those that have been so supportive of her. And I think you hit the nail on the head that if I'm playing in a soccer game or something and I have a bad day, coach can just sub me out because I, I may not, you know, really severely injure myself. But if she's doing something and she's flying in the air and she gets lost, man, that could be a serious injury. What about those people that don't understand? How do we educate them? Uh that's a tough one because I try not to be critical. I just think there's a little bit of, like you said, how do we educate them is the perfect way to say it. Because I think it is just a level of naiveness or uneducation or whatever it may be to where I think the more and more examples that are brought up like that to where if she's on the beam and something goes wrong, there's severe injury. And it's like, well, that's what she does. That's her sport. And it's like, okay, but that doesn't mean that that should occur. But um, I think what we're doing, like on this podcast, I think what the people that are being supportive, Dan Patrick, other people that are interviewing her, her kind of talking through what she's going through in the press conference and that kind of thing. I think that's the education. And if people continue to get the information and they still can't support her based on everything she said, it's not like she just quit or whatnot. I think the way to educate those people that are being critical is podcasts like this, people like Dan Patrick, you know, her own responses in the press conferences and everything like that. Uh, if people can gather the information and care enough to do the research on what's actually going on and they're still critical of her, I would doubt that they've ever performed at anything at the, a high level like she has. I would imagine there's some jealousy, self-esteem issues, and all the other issues that usually leads to 
you know, people attacking others, especially behind the comfort of a screen or a phone on social media, um, which we could do a two hour podcast that had to be R rated for me to answer those questions. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent. Hey, and now she bounces back. She wins a bronze medal on the balance beam, which is tremendous because now it shows. And I think it shows the example to everybody that, Hey, I can have these issues. I can overcome them and I can come back. But how do athletes just, she, it was turned off for her for a minute and now it was turned back on. How does that happen? Mental work, mental training. Um, and it could have been one buzzword or phrase. I'm sure she was talking to sports psychologists, you know, on this whole thing. I'm sure there's people on the staff now with all the resources these athletes have, but anybody that's ever done anything, it doesn't really even have to be a high level, you know, physical activity in athletics, but I mean, there's times where you'll do something you've done a hundred times and it just feels wrong. It feels weird. And you have to take a step back and almost use a mental device. Like in golf, it happens to me all the time where I'll be rolling, rolling, rolling. I'm, I've hit eight, five irons right down the middle of the fairway. And then the ninth and 10th one go to different countries. And it's like, <laughs> what just happened? And then it's just something simple, slowing down, getting back to a process, deep breath, focus here and go. Because for her, I'm sure everything was like twisties, sponsors, my country, my teammates, this and that. Well, try to do a double flippy dippy, whatever they call them. Right. Thinking about all that stuff instead of thinking deep breath, do the spin, land here and, you know, finish the performance. Um, so it's mental training and it's getting back to focusing on what you can control in the moment. That's why athletes go in and out. That's why certain situations with that pitcher that couldn't pitch in Yankee Stadium was not thinking about fastball outside corner attack. He was thinking about Yankee Stadium, crowd, pressure, this and that. And then he tried to throw the pitch and it went all over the place. And so um, a little bit of a mental foundation with getting back to a process a lot of times is how you can kind of go in and out and get right back to what made you successful in the first place. But you got to practice it. Yeah, it's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice makes perfect. You know, when kids are telling us they're suffering, I was teaching summer school this past year, and I was teaching hybrid PE. And I was I gave kids an activity log, and we talked about this. Hey, just get out and do something. Get out of your house. Go on a walk. Do something physical. And, and I had a lot of kids say, you know what? I did go on that walk. I got out of the house. And I did feel better. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that stuff like that, just these little baby steps that we can give kids, because it's not just athletes. It's its every kid almost everywhere that has been exposed to this. Find something fun. Get out of your, your, your house, your bedroom, and just escape from it for a few minutes. Yeah, and have like old school fun where there's no results, there's no eight-year-old trophy, or there's no, you know, I met my friends from my neighborhood in the park, and we'd play wiffle ball, or we'd play something dumb, and I'm only 34, I'm not that old, but like, that was still a thing, you know, it wasn't all travel ball all the time, or it wasn't everything was structured, and we've got this lesson at this time, and then we got to go here, and we got to go there, like have do something fun, just your childhood imagination and parents encourage that coaches encourage that um, because over the last 18 months, 
the CEO of Jager Sports has two boys that are 15 and under, 15 and 12, I think. And they'd come in here, I think, every other Monday um, while something was going on at their house. And I would look at their school day during COVID. You know, we're in Southern California, so it was all the way up through this last year. And it just hits you in the gut where these kids, they're not interacting. You know, they've got a hoodie over their head. They're slouched in their chair. They're just listening to the teacher for the 50 minutes that they have to and then getting on to the next class. And I walked into one of those. Um, I was getting something out of the room and I asked the the kid, I was like, what class are you in right now? He's like, P.E. I was like, you're in P.E. right now? You're sitting in your chair like in a sweatshirt. And I could see his teacher on the screen on Zoom doing like jumping jacks or something. And I was just like, man, this is like my thought at the time was, what is this going to do three to five years from now? Yeah. Because my little interactions at seventh grade dances with girls, you know, being of terrified to ask a girl to dance or, you know, going through different stuff in class and getting in little fights and stuff. Those are the things that make you grow and make you learn. And you have the interaction with your parents and the void of social interaction and human interaction this last 18 months is what terrifies me for what that's going to do to add on to the mental health issues that were already on the rise, like insane statistically before COVID. And now we've all been isolated, which is one of the worst things you can do for mental health. Um, so yeah, it's just a compounding compounding effect that the effect that's going to change it is going to be taking action the other way. And like you said, encouraging the kid to go outside, take a walk, do something fun. And then the, the fun part, because you mentioned it. I mean, we've, I saw this kid on social media. He's in eighth grade. I'd like to announce my commitment to Bishop Amat high school. And, you know, we're putting all this pressure on kids. I mean, I've got, I don't have grandkids yet, but, you know, should I now start tweeting out that they've received offers to play wherever? Because that's what we're seeing. And, and like you said, you'd show up at a park with your buddies. We did the same thing. And, and you just played for fun without adults, without parents. And you being in sports, me being in sports, how do we get away from this travel ball, scholarship chasing, money making, you know, fiasco that, that we have where, Kids just need to go back and play and have fun. Uh, leadership. Leadership and, you know, you can make your money and money's great. You know, we all need to make our money to live and everything like that. But the insane competition of travel ball at eight years old. I mean, the calls I've gotten at Jager Sports and the calls I get with AAAD, the worst calls are parents of eight-year-olds panicking about velocity. <laughs> or you know, a mom wondering when her ninth grader is going to get scholarship offers because all the other kids at the high school are bragging about their scholarship offers. And my response is always like, well, first of all, when I was eight years old, I was number two on my baseball team because I was the second smallest kid and our jersey numbers were based on size. <laughs> so no one gives a crap. I'm 6'2 now, 195 pounds, and I was tiny at eight years old. And then as a freshman in high school – you know, I was small. I didn't get any offers till after junior year. Everybody's process is going to be different, but it has to start with leadership, leaderships of big organizations, stressing the right things, fundamentals, being a good human being, practicing mental health and mental training on a regular basis um, and defining what the core values are. Because if from the outside, 
um, or even from the inside if you're not uh, paying attention. If the core values seem like winning tournaments, throwing 120 pitches at 12 years old, and getting on a ranking system from age 8 to 15, then you're not going to stop the masses from competing. It's just the way human nature is. And so we have to do some serious, serious work from the ground up um, and doing stuff like this. Like I said, this this helps in its own way. And it, you just got to take responsibility on yourself, teach your kids the right things. And if you're blessed with the greatest responsibility on this earth, which is leadership, do it for the right reasons um, and the results will take care of themselves. You know, coaching has definitely changed. Back in my day, and I'm, I'm a few years older than you, uh, if we did this, you know, stuff like this caused coaches to call you weak. We've turned a corner for the better. How should coaches coach these days? When What they need to do is they've got to put in their system. They've got to have the kids weight train. They've got to physically condition. They've got to do all of these things to ensure that when they go out on the field or wherever they are, they're, they're prepared physically. But then how do we – you know, help that mental side of the game as coaches during practice and during off season and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think you hit on a big point because it's not about taking anything away from the physical part of training, right? The physical part of training is as advanced and as important as it's ever been in the history of athletics. Just look at the world records being broken at the Olympics, right? We're getting faster, stronger, everything like that. But in my opinion, the physical part is the easy part because that's what we've done for generations, right? You know the practice plans. You know weight training. If you get the right people that are educated, that stuff's going to take care of itself. Mental training takes work because the results aren't directly and immediately accessible to you, right? If you do some fundamental changes with a hitter in batting practice and he starts hitting the ball a little better, that's fulfilling, and it's easy to keep working at that. When you do mental training – and it takes weeks and months before adversity hits or before a situation occurs to where, okay, let's see how this mental foundation that we've laid is working. We can get lazy, right? And so my biggest thing would be for coaches to try to create adversity in practice and not anything crazy. Don't scream at your kids or put crazy pressure on them. But do second and third situations down by one in the seventh and have a lap on the line, something nothing crazy physically but just to bring a little bit of pressure. And then if the athlete fails, that should almost be celebrated more. And we should teach lessons there like, okay, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Were you focused on just seeing the ball well, hitting it hard? Were you focused on your focal point as a pitcher and hitting the outside corner? Create situations and then work through them with your athletes. Communicate with them. And you don't have to be a PhD in psychology. If you coach, you probably played, so you know the situations that made you uncomfortable, right? You know the situations that made you, you know, a little more nervous, a little more anxious. And so if you work through it with them, explain the why to the players. Don't say to your player when he fails, you got to be tougher than that mentally. Okay, coach, well, how? I'm 15. I don't know what mental training right. is. Like, <laughs> you're my coach. So if you work through it, and you don't have to be a PhD in psychology, like I said, you just have to do the work day by day. We have stuff on jagersports.com for free, for free. It's not an advertisement. That's 10-minute mental practice that you can implement to your practice plan every single day, right? There's something you can do. It's bare minimum, very simple, getting your players a relationship with their breath, 
getting them to visualize themselves succeeding or failing and how to deal with that failure. Um, but you have to prioritize it. That's I give a three-step, three-action step, three action step um, presentation, and then I say prioritize mental health and mental training, uh, do daily mental practice, and then number three is be a human being, which is just to remind the coach that they were once a player and they know what things pissed them off as a player when their coach was t- treating them a certain way. And yet they get into coaching and treat their, their players the exact same way. It boggles my mind. So coach your players the way you wanted to be coached. So Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that. Um, and your book, Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression. How's that selling? How's that, um, how's that going for you, the feedback you've gotten on it? It's going really well. It's going um, about as good as I could hope. It's called the, the Mental Health Manual and the Mental Health Manual Companion Journal. And it's basically just real world mental health resources where it's for everybody, not just athletes. Each section covers one resource like sleep, nutrition, exercise, um, journaling, and then the companion journals, your own little diary, if you want to call it that, uh, where you put pen to paper, get to work on your own mental health journey. Um, And yeah, it's just based, it's not scientific. It's based on my own journey and my own research and the therapists that I've worked with over the years and continue to work with. And it's been really cool. And uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And you can go to mentalhealthmanual.org or Athletes Against Anxiety Depression on Google, and it'll be there for sure. And that's aaadf.org, correct? Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this again, China. It's, it's such an important thing. The last thing I want to do before I let you go, let's just have some fun. Let's just do your top five Olympic moments. For you, who is your favorite Olympic male athlete ever? Favorite Olympic male athlete ever. Ooh. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm top heavy. Like my favorite athletes are Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, you know, so favorite Olympic athletes are going to be the same way. Michael Phelps, his tenacity, his longevity, Usain Bolt and his charisma and the way he kind of made it kind of cool. Um, I'd say those two are up there for sure. Female athlete. Female athlete. I mean, Katie Ledecky was pretty sweet. Um, I mean, the mental health pub that I'm getting right now, I kind of got to go with Simone Biles, don't I? I've been asked so many times, <laughs> led to so many cool conversations. So let's go with her. What winter Olympic sport do you look most forward to watching? Oh, that's such an easy, easy one. Curling. Let's get some brooms off <laughs> and let's sweep the ice and see what kind of crazy spin we could get. I'm the, I'm that guy. I tell everybody about curling every time it comes up. It's hilarious. What about summer Olympics? Summer Olympics. I'd say the swimming. I love the competition and the, the adrenaline and the, the adrenaline rush you get just watching in your living room when somebody's gaining on someone and you don't know who's going to touch the wall first. I kind of like all of the swimming events. And your favorite Olympic moment in the history or as long as you've been watching the Olympics, either team or individual? That's such a great question. The moment for me, I was at Dodger Stadium. I don't know if it was 2016, 2012, 2008 because he did it for so long. But it was when Phelps was going – for those, like, I don't know how many medals he won in the one Olympics where I think he set the record, right, for one, the amount of medals. Yeah. And there was the South African or the Australian that was, I think, favored in the event right right there with Phelps. And we were at Dodger Stadium, and we weren't watching the baseball game. We were all huddled around a TV, and they had it on. 
and Phelps closed on him and it looked neck and neck and you just see the number one in the USA come up first and that place went freaking crazy. I'm getting goosebumps right now telling the story. And so that moment, just because of like the environment I was in and feeling like that pride, that American pride, USA, USA, that was that was probably mine for sure. <laughs> Awesome. Well, China, once again, man, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I think it's so important, the work that you guys are doing at Jager Sports. And, and you know, Alan is a 45-year friend of mine, and, and I know he's doing it for all the right reasons, as are you. And, and uh, hopefully we can turn a corner on this in the very near future and, and get kids back into school, get them out playing, and, and make this fun again. Yeah, absolutely. Just get back to uh... – little bit of normalcy and yeah if you're struggling out there just realize it's okay to not be okay there are resources available to you uh just do some internet searches or contact me if you have to and then if you haven't struggled with mental health before um just be a human being be understanding because even if you haven't dealt with something mental health wise you've dealt with adversity in your life because if you haven't i don't think you're alive um yeah ain't that the truth yeah so be understanding be a human and uh Stay off social media as much as you can and uh, treat each other with some smiles and some happiness. <laughs> awesome. Great advice. Well, I want to thank China again for taking the time to do this. I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen. I want to thank betonline.ag for being the sponsor for this. And everybody out there, like China said, go take care of yourself and be a good person. Until the next time, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.